Welcome to the Marty Smith's America Podcast. One of the more memorable collegiate athletes of all time and one of the best collegiate athletes of all time joins us on this episode. Former Florida State quarterback Charlie Ward is with us this week on the Marty Smith's America Podcast. Charlie's an interesting dude, guys. He wins the 1993 Heisman Trophy and then chooses against preparing for the NFL Combine so as to play his senior year of basketball at Florida State. Then he doesn't get drafted in the NFL draft, but he does get drafted 26th overall by the New York Knicks in the NBA draft and goes on to play 11 years in the NBA. Since he retired from basketball, he's coached, he's mentored, he's helped countless people. His Christian faith drives his entire life. And our conversation was wide-ranging. I learned a lot about him, a guy that I have long admired. And after we get done with Charlie, make sure y'all hang around because I wanted to learn more about Charlie. Charlie won't give it up. Charlie's so humble. Charlie's humility is so overwhelming. He will not talk about himself. He will not embellish. He will not truly give up his own excellence. So I had to call one of his former teammates, one of my boys, Danny Cannell from Sirius XM, of course, my former colleague at ESPN. And Danny was Charlie Ward's backup at Florida State for his first year or two and uh, before he became the starter for the Seminoles. So Danny has tremendous insight on who Charlie Ward is. Danny is hilarious, a great storyteller. So make sure you hang around for the Marty Party with Danny Cannell. And now... 1993 Heisman Trophy winner, Charlie Ward. 1993 Heisman Trophy winner, former New York Knick, former Eastern Conference champion, former high school football coach, current high school basketball coach. Did I get all that right, Charlie? Uh, I'm all of the above. All the above, man. It's very difficult to encapsulate your life, your career. You're like Forrest Gump, man. I mean, you dreamed that you did it. How would you describe your path? Uh, well, it's definitely been uh, one of great learning. I've done a, been a part of a lot of situations, both positive and negative. And uh, it's definitely been, you know, something that I've cherished. You know, a lot of people, we all hate going through tough times. But, you know, as a Christian, the tough times are there to help build us. Um, build our faith and trust that God has a plan for us. And, you know, just overall, you know, people ask me a lot of times, do you regret certain things? There are a lot of things that I would do differently. However, um, there's nothing I regret because it was all part of God's plan to be able to share my story uh, with other people on how to overcome difficult situations and still be successful. What was the toughest time? Um, well, of course, I've been living for 47 years, so that's younger than some and older than others. Um, but I've uh, had, you know, quite a few challenges um, in my life that have kind of helped me understand that life doesn't always, uh, life is not always going to be a bed of roses. And um, that really started in high school when, you know, being an athlete, um, and that's all I wanted to do. Um, and you know, if I could be a professional athlete in elementary school, I would have, I would have been, I've been one of them, but, you know, I had to go through the process of uh, learning, um, how to come back from injury. That was like the, really the start, uh, messed my knee up and I, as a freshman after the, my last basketball game, 
and I was out for you know two springs and it was eight eight months you know period. And so uh, that was the most difficult one of the most difficult times because I was young, um, invincible in my mind, and God just removed what I wanted to do for me to help help me focus on you know him and also other things like academics. And so that was a challenging time, and uh, which you know helped me to understand about persevering and not giving up uh, when you when you're going through difficult situation and and of course there are plenty of other stories um, in college where I was was, I went to school to play quarterback and I ended up my freshman year being a punter which you know that was a change in my my mindset and that's not what I was recruited for so you know I had to go through that 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 period of time of doubting and not understanding and also having to be patient wait for my turn, which that's what Coach Bob told me. And I just had to, you know, wait. And as I waited, I ended up, you know, winning a job my junior year. And we went 22-2, and two, I think it was, in a two-year span. And ended up winning a national championship and a Heisman Trophy and a lot of other awards, which after that time, not getting drafted in football, but getting an opportunity in the NBA and having to sit my um, rookie year and my uh, the first part of my second year when I was supposed to be uh, one of the guys not 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 a starter but uh, a backup but we had a coaching change and uh, plans changed quickly um, I went from possibly being a starter or backup to not in the rotation at all. How does Bobby Bowden deliver the message? Charlie Ward, you're a quarterback, but not yet. You're going to be the punter. How does he deliver that message? I really missed the message. You know, I was immature uh, during that time, and, you know, I really missed the message. As I continue to mature, I, I saw it much clearer, and I think that happens as you mature in life. I mean, that's in everyone. And so, you know, to me, I was a punter in high school, so it wasn't out of the realm of impossibility. And they asked me to compete for the job because our punter that was on scholarship had tore his knee up, and he wasn't ready to punt. So uh, there was a competition between me and a walk-on, Scott McLaren, and I ended up winning the job. And so I didn't really see the blessing in, you know, the punting, um, but I actually won the job. And that's how, you know, I was, became the punter. So... You know, he, I mean, he just basically assured me that we're going to ask, you know, we'd like for you to, you know, at least compete for the job, and, and then we'll make a decision. And so I ended up winning the job, and I didn't see the blessing in it at the time. But now when I look back, you know, I actually competed and won. And so that's just my nature in, in general, and, and that's something that I always cherish. You said a moment ago you do some things differently. What are those things? Some of the choices. Um, as a Christian, not walking uh, faithfully with the Lord at all times was with my, it was during that time with my girlfriend or some of the things that I was watching while I was in the pros. Um, and, you know, those are things that I definitely would do differently. Um, at now that I've matured in my faith and, you know, just being, want to be held accountable more. 
And so that's something that we all are proud of, but it's a great learning lessons that, you know, I always pass on to the kids that I coach today and even my biological kids. Everybody's flawed, man. We're all flawed. Uh, I know that you put, uh, released a book late last year. What do we learn about you in that book? You know, I go around and speak to different organizations and, you know, I really talk about, you know, the three P's, you know, in my life and how God prepared me for my success and uh, how I was able to persevere um, to see my success. And then I had to be patient in order for me to, you know, see my success. So, you know, just those three P's and how, you know, how it all came about, you know, between my mom and dad and how they met and all the, you know, it's a, he did, uh, John Finkel did an awesome job of writing the book. Uh, he has a lot of stories in there that were captured from my childhood days, my playing days, high school, college, and professional, and even, you know, what I'm doing today. And so, you know, it's, it's a well-written book. It's easy to read. A lot of, I got a lot of reviews about it. It's just easy. And, um, and so it's something that, you know, whenever I would go to speak, People asked me if I had a book out, and at that time I didn't. And so now, you know, I'm grateful that I do have a book out to be able to share my story. And, and hopefully people see that, uh, you know, whenever I get introduced, I always they always share uh, the accolades and those types of things. But a lot of times people really don't know the journey. Where do you think you rank among the best athletes ever? Uh, well, I'm... Um, for me, I'm grateful to be mentioned in that group. Uh, you know, the Bo Jackson, the Deion Sanders, um, and those guys that have played multiple sports. Um, and so, you know, just to be mentioned, you know, you know, on Twitter and Facebook and all the different social media outlets, they have you know best athletes and those types of things. And for me to be mentioned in that group, you know, is a great honor. Take me through the NFL versus NBA decision. Why was basketball right for you after winning the Heisman Trophy and then taking it to the hardwood? I kind of took the non-traditional route, which uh, most college football players after their season ends, which I was fortunate to be able to graduate my uh, that December, um, I chose not to go and start preparing for the combine, but I chose to go and be a senior leader on our basketball team and also keep my options open for for the NBA. And, you know, our season during that time, I mean, that season that year wasn't uh, the best. I think we went three 500 and had a decent year. Um, but more importantly, you know, I was able to continue to play basketball to keep that option open. And I missed the combine, which, of course, that's like death to an NFL prospect. And uh, they did their homework and asked people uh, closest to me about, you know, what they thought I may do. And, um, and of course, I wasn't 100% committed to the NFL because I didn't drop basketball, and that's the way I wanted it uh, to be. So uh, when it came down to it, you know, I, I worked out for them on um, pro day here at, you know, at Florida State. And... It was okay. wasn't the best because I was I was doing multiple. I was training for both sports, basketball and football, and my height was going to be what it was, and my weight 
was down to more so basketball weight. And so that wasn't a good look when I jumped on the scales. And um, and so, you know, I had a few few uh, NFL teams that were interested uh, in me. The Atlanta Falcons was one because they ran the run and shoot. Um, but, you know, I was a not just a one-dimensional quarterback. I uh, I could throw the football. I could also run. And um, and so those are things that, you know, sometimes you you can't control or measure in a sense. But uh, when it came down to the NFL draft, um, I kind of knew uh, they had told me going in that I would be either a third or fourth round pick, regardless if I did anything. And after you know, my workouts and what have you, I kind of figured that I wasn't going to get drafted. Um, I did receive a call in the fifth round from the Kansas City Chiefs. Um, I think Joe Montana was a starting quarterback, and he was, you know, his way to retirement, and they tried to sell me on the fact that I could be um, his backup and then potentially take over the job once he retires. And so, you know, that was intriguing. However, um, I told them I couldn't guarantee them that if they did draft me in the first round that I would you know, come to camp because if I got drafted in the first round in the NBA, which I at the time I had no clue, it was a faith walk, um, that you know I was going to go ahead and you know, go and play in the NBA. And so I didn't get drafted at all. And so what it really drove me to do was to continue to work harder in basketball so that I can improve my stock and you know, that's how I was able to, uh, you know, move, I want to say up the draft boards or move into the first round because, you know, I show a lot of potential and upside from, you know, the first time people saw me uh, in a combine to, you know, the, the private workouts. And so I was grateful that the New York Knicks, you know, saw enough of me upside-wise to, to give me an opportunity to play in the NBA. There's a lot of dual threat quarterbacks these days in the NFL. It's much more accepted, I guess, is the way to put it. What if you faced that decision these days versus back then where it was all traditional offenses? Um, For me, I would do the same thing. People ask me, you know, would your thought process change and what have you? I I don't think it would. You know, I'm grateful that – you know, the six-foot quarterback, you know, now they have opportunities, you know, like Baker Mayfield getting an opportunity to be the number one pick. Now, during my time, that wasn't even a fault um, for the number one pick or even let alone possibly a first-round pick because there are a lot of jobs on the lines and people would take, you know, what they would consider a Mercedes or Maybach over a um, you know a Cadillac, and so because one more one may be more expensive or bigger than the other, and so um, the, just the thought process of a six foot quarterback going uh, number one is definitely a sign of the times, and I'm so happy for Baker because um, he's worked hard and you know he's a winner. Your kids aware of who Dad is? Who dad was, or they just roll their eyes when you try to give them advice? Um, no, they they know my <laughs> my my youngest son. He 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 plays into it at the school and wherever he goes. That's and we had to work with him on just finding his own identity. 
Uh, but I'm grateful that he's proud of his dad in that sense. But, you know, when I go back, when I take him back to Florida State, I mean, they, they know and they see, you know, the accolades and pictures and stuff on the wall. And, and so, and they also see when I go out to different places. So I've taken them, you know, a lot of different places with me, speaking engagements, appearances, and those types of things. So they understand and know what I've been able to accomplish. And, of course, I don't hold that to them. I want them to be better than dad or and mom. Um, and so they have to blaze their own course. You mentioned uh, some former Florida State teammates that went on to play in the NFL. One of those was Warwick Dunn. And your story with Warwick has – it's well documented, but it's one that was always very intriguing to me. And since I get to talk to you, I want to hear it firsthand. How did you learn about Warwick's mother, Warwick's home situation, and why was it so important for you to do, to befriend him? I was his host when he came to Florida State. Um, but before that time, I uh, was uh, was fortunate to be able to meet a guy by the name of Doug Williams. Oh, yeah. Who was my hero um, in college, and that's the reason why I ended up wearing number 17, because of Doug Williams. And he came to one of my games, one of our games my junior year, and he, of course he's from Louisiana, and he knew Warwick's mom. And so while I was there, while we were at the game, um, he had mentioned to me that he wanted me to take care of uh, Warwick while I was, you know, you know, in college. And so I was fortunate to not have a roommate my senior year. And it wasn't out of the norm. And there were some seniors that had freshmen and roommate roommates. Um, but for for us, it was, you know, a bond because uh, one, my hero asked me to take care of uh, a guy that he knew. And, and we were like-minded in a lot of ways, meaning we were very, we both quiet, and that meant that we would listen to each other if we needed to talk. And so I didn't know. I, I knew of him um, as far as an athlete. He came in as a DB, but we ended up having to move him to running back when he when Tiger McMillan got injured uh, during the preseason. And so you know it was a match made in heaven because um, my senior year. The status and the things, I, things that I went through from a um, media perspective, and just handling the, the pressures of, you know, being the, the quarterback and those types of things, you know, on a nationally ranked team, uh, he was able to see all those things and how I handled it and how I dealt with them, and so that helped prepare him for when he became um, me. You know, after I left, and you know, a couple of years later, and you know, so he had a lot of things with you know humility and grace, and took took it for what it was what it was worth. What was it about Doug Williams that made him your hero? Well, of course, he's an African American quarterback that won the Super Bowl um, at that time, and it wasn't very many of us, you know, and so I needed someone to be able to. I look up to that could, you know, give me hope that at some point in time, you know, I may be that guy. Um, and so, um, and then, you know, I, I don't know, I, I don't know his background, but I know he played at Grambling, which was, um, you know, 
historically black college, and I know my, my mom and dad, they went to FAMU, um, and, and my older sister you know, graduated from FAMU, and so I knew of Grambling. But, you know, just you know, having an African-American quarterback to look up to during that time, and he just won the Super Bowl, you know, it was a great, great honor. Couple more things, and we'll get you out of here. We've taken too much of your time already. I used to love watching you guys play hoops. You and Bobby Sura and Sam Cassell and that whole lot. I mean, you guys were wide open ball, and Sura could fly, and Sam Cassell was a great trash talking. He was a good trash talker. <laughs> How much trash did that guy talk at Florida State, Charlie? Uh, well, Sam was a talker, <laughs> and um, he just didn't talk to other other teams. He talked to us as well. <laughs> <laughs> so he he always had something for us with, with the practice and with those games, um, and he always had something. But um, one of the great teammates, I'm definitely grateful that he came to us, you know, after his days in junior college, and um, he was definitely a compliment to uh, our team and the success that we had um, over the course of those um Two two years that he was in uh, at Florida State, and so um, I don't know how much he's maybe he's matured a little bit. Maybe he doesn't talk as much, but I doubt it. I mean, he's a he's from Baltimore, and he definitely like to use use that that <laughs> mouth. <laughs> what what former teammates in any sport uh, do you keep the closest with today? Uh, well, Allen Houston. Is probably the one that I keep up with the most from as far as professional sports. Anyway, um, I'm not, I'm not should Alan you guys I, have won a championship? No, we we came close. We were in the finals together, but um, from a spiritual perspective, he's the one that I we kind of keep in contact with. He has a fatherhood initiative and. Um, leadership and those types of things that he's doing and, you know, we're working to collaborate on. And, you know, from a spiritual perspective, we kind of grew close uh, during our years of playing with the New York Knicks. And so that's kind of how we keep our bond as well. What's a good Van Gundy story? I've met him once. Uh I had to go down last year to cover Kevin Durant's return to Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Got the opportunity to say hello to him. I'm a big fan of his. I think he's hilarious. I think he's brilliant on television. Right. So you have to have a great story about that guy. Well, this is so, as we call him, JVG. Um, we were coming back from one of our trips. I'm not sure where we come back from, the late night game on our, on our airplane. And during this time, I think, he may have been, you know, in the league. He might have been in the league long enough, but he was the head coach. And he had been in the head coach long enough to be able to get a new a new ride. But he still had this, I don't know what it was, 19-old, I'll just say old Honda <laughs> Accord. And we, we were coming through um, and parking the, they were parking the uh, airplane, and while they were parking the airplane, uh, the jet, um, you know, sped up. And the engine, you know, when he was turning, 
ended up like blowing some of the cars off of the um, the runway. And so this car was one of those cars that got blown up. I mean, got blown <laughs> off the runway, and like uh, it was like a car accident in the parking lot. And so that was uh, one of the <laughs> one of the stories. You have all these nice cars, Range Rovers, Mercedes, and then you have the the Honda Accord, nineteen old, um, in the parking lot, and that's the one that ends up, you know, crashing into the Range Rovers and Mercedes. So that guy's your coach. I mean, you guys have Camby, Ewing. You mentioned Houston, Larry Johnson, Dennis Scott, Spree, Kurt Thomas. I mean, Herb Williams. You guys had all kinds of ballers. Who had the who had the most swag? Who was the swaggiest of the whole lot on that era of the New York Knicks? Now, Larry Johnson was a guy that he had all the swag, bro. Yeah, he 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 liked to dress, so he he was very meticulous when it came to his attire. Um, out of the group, out of the guys that you name, you know, he, he had to look the best all the time. Whether it was in a sweatsuit, whether it was in a suit, whether it was with a hat, you know, he he had to be dapper. And so um, I would say Larry Johnson if I had to choose out of that group. All right, last thing, and I'll get you out of here. You told me a great Van Gundy story. I got to have a great Bobby Bowden story. What is it? What What is your best Bobby Bowden tale? Because... I mean, he's Coach Bowden. Right. He's Coach Bowden. great thing about, I guess, I know when I was there, and people always said the same thing even afterwards, uh, we were very rarely, I I can remember maybe one time in my two years of playing at least, and then even before that, we were always winning at halftime. And um, and so every halftime speech was, he, he would say something about the defense. Defense, we got to stop whatever the quarterback or whoever was having a good game at the time, the running back. We got to make sure we plug those holes, do our assignments, and then he would go to the offense. Offensive line, you got to protect. He, at the time, he'd say, Charlie. That was me. And he's like, if we, check, if we protect Charlie, he can get that ball down to our, our wide receivers and our running backs can run and we can, we, we can win the game. And... Um, and so every every halftime, it was the same speech each and every time, regardless of who, no matter who we were playing. And everyone knows, everyone knew the speech. And it was, you know, something that we, we knew was coming. And he was like, at the end, he was like, defense, if you don't let them score, we win the game. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> and so we... Um, so we we ended up, except for two games, my junior and senior year, we were able to make it happen. But um, that was his 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 speech at halftime. Well, brother, I can't thank you enough for your time and insight and storytelling. It's really appreciated. Congratulations on all your success and keep it going, man. Appreciate well, you. I, I appreciate you too, and keep on doing what you do. To me, that story about Coach Bowden's halftime speeches is hilarious. I never saw one. I didn't play for the man. But I can see all those old boys just looking around at each other, laughing and rolling their eyes. And to get some further insight on such matters, I called Captain Seminole himself, my boy Danny Cannell, 
to hang out in the Marty Party. What are we going to do, bud? We're going to drink one of these beers. Hand me one of them damn beers real quick. What's up, man? Marty Party. And what now, is going on, man? How we doing? Uh, brother, uh, I'm amazing. How are you doing? I am fantastic. I'm glad you got to catch up with my man, Charlie Ward. He is the best. He's the nicest guy of all time, right? Like, is he, he just he the really most, is. is he the most composed human being ever? Like, I couldn't, I couldn't get him juiced, man. I guess I got to be yeah. out there on the hardwood of the field with him to get him juiced. No, that wouldn't change. That's the craziest thing about <laughs> it is that I don't think his pulse ever goes above like 70. <laughs> not, not 170. I'm saying 70. Like, his resting heart rate's probably 40. And then when he's in a game, it goes up to like 70. I remember like how calm he would be and how quiet on the field and in the huddle and on the sidelines that it was, it was like nothing I'd ever seen. It was, it was really like the best word to describe it was like a peace. And then, you know, I'm sure he's probably talked a lot about his faith, He did, but yeah. a lot of it was, it was very, there was just a calm and a peace about him. And yet it was really infectious around everybody, which is really a good thing to have when you're, in front of 90,000 people and you can't hear anybody speaking and you almost have to read his lips and just, and it, but it's that type of focus that everybody would look at him and just say, all right, Charlie, you lead us down the field. You, you lead us to where we need to go. And he always did it. So you got a firsthand look at it. All right. You're mm-hmm. right there with him every single day. What was the most amazing thing you saw him do? Um, there was a ton. I mean, he was just, it was it, the effortless, Effortlessness, which which he ran, is that a word? I, I don't know, but it's a word might, on the Marty hey, Party. One thing um, we do in the Marty Party, son, is we create our own vernacular. It's I all like good. I like it. I like it. But he made everything look so easy. And I would say, like, when he ran with the football, like, I think he was only clocked in the 40 at 4-7, which, you know, is, is very pedestrian for, you know, a lot of quarterbacks that you would consider guys who could run around and make plays. Like you. But he just had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was, I was, a, I was a five flat guy all day long. But I was, I would watch him, and I'd be like, well, "How does he make these guys miss?" And he had just this such innate ability to just have a feel of when he was about to get wrecked because he never really got hit that hard because he just had a feel about him. But probably the single best moment or the best play that I ever saw was was um, we were at Gainesville. We were playing against Florida. It was our rival, last game of the year. We were playing to, you know, to get into a national championship game. And he's – it's like third down, and we're down – we're down by four points, I think. We needed a touchdown. We're down – it's a third down and like seven. It's loud. Florida Field was insane. Like the place was rocking. You couldn't hear anything. So it was one of those moments where you couldn't hear Charlie say a word. And he, like, evaded the brush, got outside, like, went through his progression, and then, like, had the composure to hit Ward Dunn out of the backfield as his outlet. It was, like, his third option. And Ward caught it perfectly in stride, and Ward made a guy miss down the side, which was just as sick. But those two together combined for one of the best plays in Florida State history. And simultaneously, like, within a second, you heard the crowd go from where they, they have to measure it using those uh, the decibel system, like where they have to, like they're at an airport, yeah. to you could hear a pin drop. It went that quiet, that fast. And it was just one of the most amazing plays I've ever seen. But I also, I mean, watching him play basketball, like that was the thing that was crazy about it was he had just as much ability in basketball. And a lot of it was his defensive prowess, which he was just like a glove. I mean, I know Gary Payton's a glove, but 
Charlie Ward would stick on guys, and they could not score on him. He was pretty fun to watch. It's always fun to be around humility. It's very educational to be around humility and genuine humility. Speaking with Charlie, uh, obviously he has that faith-driven, humble nature. So I got to ask, he wouldn't, I asked him, where do you think you rank on the all-time greatest athletes list? Like, you know, we all talk about Bo all the time. We talk about yep. Dion. LeBron certainly is in that conversation now. But people our age, you and me, you know, mid-40s, we remember Charlie being a bad dude. How do you how do you try to encapsulate his athleticism? So that's because I never really thought it from that way. I've always, and to speak to his humility, I was doing a segment on the radio one time, and we were doing top five college quarterbacks of all time. And I was talking about Baker Mayfield. It was just this past season. I was talking about Baker Mayfield, how he could go into that top five, maybe become the best of all time had he won the national championship. While I'm doing the segment, I get a text, and it's from Charlie. And he was like, man, stop talking about me. I don't belong in that conversation. And I texted him back. I'm like, you shut up. I'm like, you know, I know you wouldn't say it. I'm like, but you absolutely do. Um, but, like, that's the way I've always considered it was as one of the best college quarterbacks of all time. But all those guys we mentioned, the two-sport athletes, the guys that dominate their sports, like, especially the two-sport athletes. Like, Bo Jackson clearly had dominance in both sports no at a professional level. But Dion, you know, he, he played – and he was exceptional uh, in football. In baseball, he was pretty good, and he had some success. But, like, Charlie was one of the best college quarterbacks ever and then didn't, you know, decided, all right, I'm going to – and he was very smart. I'll never forget. I asked him, like, are you going to try to do the NFL? And he looked at me. He's like, man, I'm, you're crazy. I'm, not, I'm small. I'm, I'm tiny. I'm going to go play basketball because <laughs> he really was. He's not that big. And uh, but then he goes on and plays like a ten-year career in the NBA and, and lights it up and is and is extremely successful. I think if he would have been more brash and cocky, which wouldn't have been him, and I'm not suggesting he should have, he probably would be considered more because he would have been he would have been more marketed. Companies would have paid him more, but that wasn't what he was about. He just loved to do his business and play sports and be great at what he did. He wasn't about trying to be one of the best ever. But he absolutely should be in that conversation with those all-time great two-sport athletes because no one's done it as good as he has in both. You guys were really one of the first universities to go no huddle, live in the shotgun, that whole type of you know sort of modern-day offense. And I asked him, what would you do in today's offenses? What do you think that guy would have done in in Lincoln Riley's offense? Oh, he would tear it up. Now, here's I think that's the obvious answer. Here's what I think is more interesting is you say, how would he do in today's NFL? I think he would absolutely, he could thrive in today's NFL because of a couple things. One, he was a very astute individual for making the choice to play in the NBA because at the time, I don't think his body would have held up because he was barely six feet, about 185 when he was soaking wet. Like he was not big enough. He would have had to put on a lot of weight and change his body composure to survive the hits of the NFL. But as a passer, he's probably one of the most underrated passers because he was extremely accurate. He could make any throw on the field, um, and he was very cerebral. He knew where to go with the football. So if you put him in today's NFL where you protect him a little bit more, but also you have these offenses in the NFL where if you watch with the Chiefs and, and to the shoot, the Patriots are running a lot of shotgun sets too – and let him sit back there and pick you apart, he would do it all day long, and he would be elusive enough 
to still get you some yards on the ground, to extend plays, to do all the things that make guys special. I think he would be a Pro Bowl-type quarterback in today's NFL if he was playing today. He would never admit it, though. That's the funny thing about it. I know. He does not like talking about himself. So much so, I remember people would meet, they would see me after they had met him, and they'd be like, what's his problem? Like, why is he a jerk? And I would be like, oh, no. I was like, he, I was like you, you got to talk to him for just a couple minutes? And they're like, yeah. They're like, he hardly even said hi. And I'm like, no, I swear to you, I promise. It's he's so shy that it comes, and it's so humble that it can come across the wrong way if you're not careful. And I would try to like tell him that sometimes, and he was have none. He's like, I'm just me, man. I can only be me, and that's who he is. But sometimes people would be put off by it. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm like, he's the nicest guy in the world. It's just he's painfully shy sometimes, and that's that's sometimes the unfortunate aspect of some people that would meet him would think that. I'm like, you're a crazy if you think that. Am I wrong? Didn't you follow him at FSU? <laughs> I did. I thought I did. so. Well, I Man, how does he, that go? How, do, how, uh, does, how does it go from following a guy who wins a natty and the Heisman, and then next fall, Canel, you're up. <laughs> I have a soft spot in my heart for every quarterback that has to follow a Heisman <laughs> Trophy winner because it's virtually impossible. Like, the expectations, they're off the charts. But here's the other crazy thing. When I, when I went to Florida State, the plan was for me to redshirt and then sit out two years and then get to play for two years. So I would have had three years of sitting on the sideline and watching, which I desperately needed because I was young brutal, and green brutal. and dumb. I had no idea what I was doing at Florida State. But we get there. One of our quarterbacks was actually another two-sport guy named Kenny Felder. He decides to go pro baseball, all pro baseball. So he leaves the program. There's another guy who was a four- or five-star recruit. His name was Jeff McCrone, and he had some shoulder problems. So he actually ends up, like, getting shelved and never plays football again. So it's me, and I'm, like, the only scholarship quarterback that's left on the roster in Charlie. So Charlie, the first couple games, and I'm, like, trying to learn the system. I'm trying to learn how to take snaps. Like, I'm so green. So Charlie actually played really bad early on, and he would tell you this. He had, like, four interception games. We were at Clemson, I think it was week two or three, and we're getting beat. And so Bobby Bowden was, like, playing me. I would go in and actually play, and he'd bench Charlie, and he'd put me in, and I'd go in and hand off, like, two or three times. And then, <laughs> th- thankfully, he'd put Charlie back in. Charlie would come back in, and it would, like, spark. It would kind of, like, wake him up. And he'd go back in the game, and he'd bring us from behind. And this happened, like, three or four times. It happened against Georgia Tech. It happened against North Carolina. And, like, we're, like, flirting with disaster because we have a really good team. We're almost losing. So in the process of this, I'm getting, like, a couple snaps. And I remember later Mark Rick told me this. He said, you realize how close you were to just becoming the starter? And I was like, really? He's like, well, yeah, you saw it. Charlie was awful. He was throwing interceptions to the wrong team. He was throwing passes to the wrong team all the time. But I simply was not ready to play. But the huge blessing in disguise of all of it, was every time he'd come, he'd come back in, we'd be down a touchdown or two touchdowns, and we'd run the two-minute drill. And so we were running this up-tempo offense to come back because we had to. And P- Coach Bowden, being the, you know one of the greatest coaches ever, had the wisdom to say, you know what, that Charlie Ward looks pretty good when we run no huddle. Why don't? And he said to Mark Rick, he's like, why don't we start the game in it? And sure enough, they did, and that was kind of the rest of history because once we started doing that, Charlie just felt more comfortable in that system, 
and, you know, put up the monster numbers and then kind of took off from there. And the next year wins the Heisman and the national championship. So I did play a small part in that because I wasn't good enough, allowed him to be great. (laughs) (laughs) All right, brother, I'll get you out of here on this. Charlie was telling us uh, at the end of the interview there, I asked him, just tell me a great Bobby Bowden story. What's a great Bobby Bowden story? And he was telling me about, he said, man, for like two years, we all knew exactly what the halftime speech was going to be because it was the exact same speech every single halftime. So I want, I need your firsthand account. First of all, I just want a great Bobby Bowden story. You're a great storyteller. (laughs) Tell me a great Bobby Bowden story. But before you tell me the great Bobby Bowden story, put me in that locker room when Coach Bowden is giving the exact same halftime speech 20 straight games. (laughs) Well, it was one where when Coach Bowden spoke, you were going to listen no matter what. But, and I could, when it was funny because when I became, when I was finally getting up there, when I was third or fourth year, I was a junior or senior, we would almost recite it and kind of jokingly (laughs) on the way to games, be like, all right, you guys know what we're going to get, right? So it was always seniors won't let us lose. That was like big point number one. Seniors won't let us lose. And then he'd call out a couple guys. He's like, all right, Canel, you're a senior. No way you can let this happen. And, you know, somebody else would say it. And then if we had a lead, it was always going to come out. If they don't score, we win the game, like if we had a lead. So that was like his message to the defense. And then he would have like one other point that was in there, and maybe it was a little bit tuned to the to, to the game itself, but it was always the assistant coaches. That was the thing that made Coach Bowden great, is he trusted his assistants and he had great assistants and let them do their job. And then he was the closer, man. He was the closer who would know the exact timing of when to go for it on fourth down when to dial up the, the trick play because he loved trick plays. And he was the closer in recruiting. He knew how to get to everybody's mamas, and that's what he called. He, he loved the mamas. He would recruit the mamas, and he knew how to close and get their boys to come to Florida State. And, uh, you know, and it was funny. I don't know if Charlie told you this or not, but before, the Friday night before games, he would give a pregame speech, and it was pretty much – it was very similar because it was a lot along the same lines. You would get the same themes over and over. And before he would talk about the football game, he would give a sermon, like a mini sermon. Like it was, it's probably today's world, he might not get away with it because people might complain. But he would give you a sermon and he would ask everybody to say, hey, if you don't know what's going to happen to you before you die, and if you die, if you go, where are you going to go? He's like, if you don't know, here's how you're going to know. And he would tell a little sermon and he would say, if you don't want to talk to me, ask our team chaplain, ask somebody who knows. So he would give a little sermon, then he would give the pregame speech. So part of the pregame speech, this is my Bobby Bowden story, probably part of the pregame speech is he would go over each position on the team, like big position. He would call out the quarterback and say, we can't turn it over. And he'd call out the defense and say, we have to get after their quarterback. And then he'd always include special teams on there too. He'd be like, special teams, like everybody's got to do their job. And this is my freshman year. I remember thinking like, all right, you know, man, this is my moment. I was the starting holder for the kicker. So I was like, oh, this is great. I get to be on the field. And I remember, so he's given the thing, and the quarterback who left was the former holder. His name was Jeff McCrone. So Coach Bowden's going through, and he's telling the story. He's like, all right, now, you know, he's like, Dan Mauer, he's like, Dan, you have to get the kick. You got to, you know, you got to make sure it goes up through that upright. He's like, but you can't do it alone. He's like, it's got to be the long snapper. He goes, Andy, Andy Crow's the long snapper. He goes, you got to give a perfect snap. And he goes, now, Jeff, you as the holder, you got to do the best job and get the hold down there perfectly. So then, and I'm sitting there thinking, 
hold on, he doesn't even know my name. I'm like, hold on a second. He was just telling my mom she had the best lasagna ever. But he learned my name my junior year when I was a starter, which is about when he learned everybody else's name, too. Because uh, everybody was a buddy. It was, hey, buddy, hey, buddy, how you doing? Everybody was a buddy. Until you got to be a starter. Then it was Danny or it was Charlie or it was whatever your name was. Then he knew it up until then. But he was uh, two – you know, Bobby Bowden and Charlie Ward are two of my favorite people of all time. They're the absolute best. You, brother, you are the best. That was absolutely tremendous. And I appreciate you. I love you. You are the man. Y'all listen to Danny on Sirius XM. Every day, one to three, right? Yep, you got it, Channel 82. Every day, one to three, Channel 82. Appreciate you, Bubba. Awesome, Marty. Great catching up with you, bud. Danny's one of my favorite people. Uh, he has been so kind to me from the second I began covering college football. I came over to the college football team from NASCAR, which I covered for many, many years full-time. And in 2014, when I transitioned over during the college football playoff to cover college football, uh, Danny was absolutely wonderful to me from the second we met, and we're still very good friends. Uh, he's a tremendous person, a great dad and husband, and one hilarious dude. Pretty damn good quarterback back in the day, too, but don't tell him I said so. Now, Danny, Danny's a pretty good storyteller, but the greatest stories every week happen on Marty and McGee on Saturday mornings from 7 to 9, and right here on the Marty Smith's America podcast, Hillbilly Hotline. Words, sayings, or just a way of life? The bowl cut plus the mullet, the bullet. <laughs> This is Hillbillyisms. It's Ruben from Goldsboro. Got a new word for you. Alcoholt. Alcoholt. You've ever gotten totally destroyed by a certain <laughs> brand of alcohol <laughs> to the point where forever after you can't get nowhere near without getting the chicken skin, <laughs> maybe a little bit of dry heaves and the chills. Just looking at it. Should alcohol you? <laughs> like, like that old Jimmy Beam alcohol me. I can't get nowhere near near without getting flashbacks. <laughs> Did he call it Jim Bean? Travis, I think he called it Jim Bean. You know it's a bad night when you're mispronouncing the liquor. He did call it Jim Bean. Okay, well that means it really kicked your ass if you don't even know his name anymore. Did he just say chicken skin? He said chicken skin. You know what chicken skin is up there in the north? Yeah, I've never heard of that before. Chicken skin is like goosebumps. Down south, we call goosebumps chicken skin. And, uh, you know, I appreciate his contribution to the Hillbilly Hotline. That's a good one. I, I, I did, I thought he might be devising and developing a new anti-hangover medicine called alcohol. That's actually pretty brilliant, to be honest with you. I think, I mean, should we just take his idea? Didn't sound like he has it copyrighted. Maybe we'll cut him in on the deal. Is there a liquor that still haunts you? I have several of them that have done it to me. Jack Daniels has kicked my ass more. Anybody that knows me knows Eric Church is my best friend, my best buddy. And uh, when he cut that song, Jack Daniels, he sent it to me, and we just sat there and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed because it's true. Old Jack's kicked my ass more times than I can count, but God, I keep going back to him. For me, it's Crown Oral. I love it, but it's kicked my butt a few times. Hey. Nobody ever accused us of being smart, Travis. And yet they've given us a podcast. They did give us a podcast. And on that note, I appreciate Travis so much. Uh, he's a beast, brother. You do a great job 
getting us these guests. It's appreciated. Above everybody else, uh, I want to thank you guys. Thank you for your commitment to this podcast. Your passion and your loyalty is appreciated beyond description. Y'all keep it between the dishes. Did you just say dishes? Wait, what? Not the dishes. Yeah, y'all keep it between the ditches. We'll see you next week.